0: So here's what I want to do. It's not going to exactly work out perfectly, but I'm going to ask these two sections just to stand. Would you stand? Just these two sections right here. Would you stand? Now, according to the Huffington Post a couple years ago, that if this this area right here, this room, symbolized America, in fact, here's what I want you to do. in, in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to do this. I want you to smile really big and, and even laugh out loud. He say, well, I'm not, nothing's funny. It just Well, act like your boss just told a story and you're supposed to laugh. So just, just do that. Well, wait, 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 wait. First of all, listen, do not follow Gary, follow me, okay? <laughs> Secondly, I want you all people here to frown when they do it, okay? Look at them and frown. Ready? Go. All right, thank you. All right, you can be seated. All right. Had nothing to do with my sermon. I just wanted to see if you could do that, so that was good. No, it. the Huffington Post said this, that in America, that about one out of three people is very happy. These folks over here are not happy. And in a country that puts in its documents that you have the right for the pursuit of happiness, we're not doing too good. If I took 10 of you and had you stand and I pulled one of you out of the 10, that person, that one would represent, according to the Washington Post, that in this world, only one out of 10 is happy with her or his job. Only one out of 10. I was with a guy this uh, a couple weeks ago and we were, we were just talking and having breakfast together and, and he just said, man, I love my job. I said, Really? said, oh, yeah, I just, I, when they'll get up in the morning, I just, I just love the fact that I'm going to go do that job. I, just, I get such great satisfaction out of my job. And I thought about that, and, and I realized that perhaps I hear that kind of comment in the 40 years that I've been, or over 40 years I've been doing pastoral ministry, that I probably have heard that comment maybe twice a year at the most. Because most people don't like their jobs. This guy says, that I was talking to, he said, this is like in my sweet spot, this, I, I am built for this. And and 9 out of 10 say, I want that. I want that. So who knows how we get there? Well, there's this this great understanding that that has been written by the Apostle Paul that I want you to see, and a lot of you have heard this before, but I want to break it down for us this morning. Ephesians 2.10, he says this. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. For we are God's workmanship. The actual literal meaning of a word is poema where we get the word poem which actually literally means this for we are God's fabric. God has created us each of us as a piece of fabric, created in Christ Jesus meaning it was manufactured. We are manufactured into who we are through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ as your faith will put you there. In fact, all that time that you've put in in, in reading the scriptures And listening to teachings about the scriptures and listening to podcasts and doing as you did this morning, absorbing worship and and participating in worship, finding solitude with God, the, the spiritual disciplines, you've gone through all those things. All of that is a process of Jesus manufacturing who God has created you to be. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. It literally means that which is of great benefit that which people would look at and say, that makes a difference. For you are the fabric of God, manufactured through Jesus Christ, so that you can do things in life where when you're done with life, you can go, God, that was great. That's exactly what I was made to do. Create in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Which God has prepared in advance means that he has been fitting you at this moment. For all that you have gone through while you've been walking with Jesus, he's been fitting you for something that is the thing that you are to be and to do so that then you can do that. And by do it, it actually means that you find it and you enjoy it and you fill it out and say, this is it. This is the deal. You say, well, that's what I want. I truly want that. So how do we find that place? That's what we're going to talk about the remainder of the summer, and I want to encourage you in something as I tell you that. We receive insight to the degree that we make it a priority. In these moments of this morning of community worship and the instruction that you're hearing, the Holy Spirit uses those moments to shape you. To say, here's here's a truth, here's how we're going to apply it to your life, so that I'm shaping you and forming you to go be that and do that thing that that I I have prepared for you to do so that you can step back and go, boy, that was of great benefit, that is just wonderful, that's what I was created to do. It happens in a setting like this. One of the dangers we have in the culture we live in, with all the technological advancements that move so quickly is that we can get truth at any moment. Some of you right now are on your phone, and, and you may be checking out something on Google at the moment, because you can just get right to that truth. You're, just, you're, you're getting truth all the time. You're getting, you're getting information all the time. Unfortunately, what it creates in us is a loss, and that loss is this, the ancient, the ancient discipline of precept upon precept in August, September, 18 million students will hit the college campuses. And somewhere in that process, they have to declare a major. That there will be a concentrated study. That they will focus on something. That they just can't say, oh, I want that, I want that, I want that, and decide that they're gonna just do whatever they want to do and then get a diploma for doing that, because you have to have a concentrated study so that you master the topic, the subject. If you're a physician, you're studying to be a physician, then I want you to study things like anatomy, biochemistry, cell biology, embryology, genetics, human behavior, immunology, neuroscience, and not some freedom of eclectic choice like the sociology of Miley Cyrus and the art of walking, which are university courses. If we piecemeal our learning, we're going to know stuff, but we won't master anything. And so I'm going to ask you to make it a priority to build precept upon precept so that we together can find our declared major, our mission in life, and understand it. If we don't master it, then we don't find our mission. And so, in these next weeks, this will be an intensive where we're going to come together and say, how do we do this? How do we find who we are to be in God? What is our mission? What am I supposed to be doing? So I want you to do this. Would you say this out loud with me? I am designed by God for a mission. Just say that. Now, just turn to the person next to you and tell them that again. Okay, so let's find it. Let's find the mission, because you do. You have a mission. About 600 years before Jesus stepped foot in Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar stepped foot in Jerusalem. He invaded Jerusalem, and he took about 10,000 officials, warriors, artisans, craftsmen, priests. And and if if those 10,000 were heads of home, then he probably took about... 30,000 people out of Jerusalem back to Babylon, and he did this in three waves. In the first wave of people he took were people you might recognize the names of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel. By the time the three waves were done, the temple was utterly destroyed, the, the palace was destroyed, the walls were torn down, and the countryside was devastated. The third wave included a guy named Nehemiah. Nehemiah, along with all of the others that were brought there, began to settle down, and and some of them even began to prosper. And and, and he began to settle until he had this incredible unsettling moment. And here's his own words. The words of Nehemiah, son of Achalya, In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Han and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire, and when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. You know, a few years ago, some very concerned citizens of Erie got together. They were very unsettled about the violence in this city, about the poverty in this city, about the depression in this city. And they believed something had to change. That is how a mission begins. That's how it starts. Our God mission begins with discontentment. Hey, that's not right. That shouldn't be. There's something wrong with that. It should be different. So Nehemiah brother arrives and, and he, he says to him, Hananiah, tell me about the people. And he said, Oh, it's horrible. They're, they're desolate. They're despondent. They're depressed. Everything's torn down. And, and the walls that are supposed to keep out the enemy are down. So, so they can be they can be invaded, and, and, and then other cultures come in and try to take over, and, and and other foreign religions come in and try to establish themselves, and he said, it's just a, it's a horrible thing. They're harassed, they're hopeless. And because of the fact that he had spent time with Jehovah God, Jehovah God began shaping him so that at the moment that he heard these words, he was discontented because Jehovah God was discontented. As God shapes us, there'll be moments where we become discontented because it is the very spirit of God in us saying, no, 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 this is not right. There's something wrong here. So what does he do with his discontentment? And, and, and here's the challenge for us. Discontentment so often brings with it an agitation. And i me tell you why, and let me just illustrate it this way. So you you take a caterpillar, and the caterpillar then begins to create its shelter, this chrysalis, and it it covers itself with a chrysalis. And in that chrysalis, what is known as the caterpillar becomes basically a soupy mess with ugly chunks and a couple breathing tubes. It is at that moment that we become agitated. Because we look over here and say, well, look, we're not what we used to be. And look, we haven't become anything better than we used to be. And everything we had before has now been deconstructed. And it just seems so soupy, so messy. It's, it's, it's just so disconcerting. It's how they felt in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Look, it's all gone. There's nothing left. And, and there's these promises of God that said it would be better, but we don't see them. And so here we are. It's all broken down, and we become agitated because it doesn't seem like God is answering at all. See we understand that as this congregation. We're at a place of, of agitation. Look, we're not what we used to be, because I remember when we used to be this, and we used to do this, and we said we're going to get here, but we're not there, and we're in the spot where it seems like everything's broken down. And we say, well, what is that? It's not God. We're agitated. And it is in that moment God wants us to know that even in the same way in the chrysalis, that if we want it to be, it can be a moment of transformation. So what do you do with, with that moment? What do you do with that agitation? Well, the temptation is to park it in complaint. And here's what happens when I get agitated. And if I complain, here's what I'm saying. Look how it is. Those people should be doing something. Those people need to fix that. Those people should do something about this. But what I'm beginning to understand is when I am discontented, when I'm agitated, and if I've been walking with God, that feeling that I'm having is a godly discontentment, which means that he's put it inside of me. He's not asking me to say those people should do something. He's, have, he's having me realize that could it be that God has fitted me for this moment? I know this about myself, that if I complain it's because I'm either too lazy, too cowardice, or too faithless to believe I can be part of the answer. And I've been guilty of all three of those. So what do we do with our discontentment? Well, we do what Nehemiah did. We sit with it. We just take a moment and we sit with it. Because if it's a God stirring, if it's truly a God stirring, what it will become is a concern. A sitting God discontentment will grow into a concern. So Nehemiah sits down. The posture that he takes is known as that of mourning, of grieving. And and what he's doing is that he's weeping, he's fasting, he's praying. And what he's doing in this moment is saying, Oh God, what am I feeling? What is this? And what he eventually will see, if this is a God thing, is what you want to see is broken. And the way that you know it's broken is because you have a vision of what it should be, and it's not that, and therefore it's broken. You see, As you're moving toward your mission, God's going to put in your heart, this thing is broken. There's something wrong here. And you're going to say, but I see something better. So what do I do with that vision? Well, you do what Nehemiah did. You still sit with it. Aristotle said that the soul never thinks without a picture. What's the answer look like? So you sit with the answer. Here's what I'm thinking that it should be. Here's how it it should be resolved. Here's how, how, I can, how I think it could, it could happen. So we sit with it. And we test it. I have had friends who have had a picture of something that should happen and should be better. And they've, just, they've said, it's God, I'm going to go. They quit their job and go do the thing. And it doesn't happen. Because they didn't know the difference between a good idea and a God idea. Because really, we have good ideas all week long. But the question is, is this a God idea? If it is a good idea only, it'll be an image, a picture like Snapchat. It will, it will come to you, but soon it will self-destruct, it will fade. So you've got to give it time. You sit with it and say, God, show me, show me, show me. And if it's a God thing, the image will become clearer. If it's not, the image will fade. A God idea only comes into focus when nurtured in God moments. So God, here's here's what I'm thinking. Just show me, show me. Is this this for real? I'm going to just rest until you show me what to do with this. Because what he's doing is this. A God idea must mature into us. Nehemiah didn't pick up and head cross country. He didn't even tell anybody about what he was thinking. He didn't even share it. What, What he did is, is that he did not allow his everyday activities to stop the, the growing concern, and he didn't allow the growing concern to stop his everyday activities. The image we, can't, the image we, we see can't be until God is ready. So a God idea must mature us, into us, and, and we must mature into the God idea. And to think about a God idea, when, when God's giving you a mission... I'm going to tell you that it's going to, the idea is going to outdistance your competency. You're going to go, I can't do that. There's no way that I could achieve that. And that's why you take time with him because he begins to shape you. He fits you for the mission. See, what we want to happen is I want to, I want to see a vision of something that's going to happen in my life or me with other people, and I want to just run to it and say, God, now show me the miracles. But in this story of Nehemiah, there is not one physical miracle. I'll tell you what there is. There's a whole lot of hard work. There's a whole lot of prayer. And there's divine intervention. So to be shaped, Nehemiah begins to pray. O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people, Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you, and yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. Please remember what you told your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. The people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants, Oh, Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. See, these words are about your mission because it's going to give you two basic ingredients about your mission. What's your foundation and where's your courage? The foundation is this. This whole thing about a mission and what you're supposed to be in life is not really about you. It's always been about God. Because the mission can never eclipse the master. We have to love God more than we do our fulfillment or our mission or our vision. Knowing that keeps us in reverence, keeps us in submission, and it keeps us from becoming so busy in the mission that we miss the worship. And I just loved what happened here this morning. You're here, you're worshiping. It puts things back in perspective. This whole thing is about God. The problem is this, that a God idea, even a God idea will deteriorate if we remove God from the center of it. Even if it's a God idea, if he's not still the center of our worship and our focus is there, the whole thing deteriorates. That's our foundation. Our courage is this, that this can't be done without you, God. God, you made the promises, he said. And I'm going to tell you, God, if you're not in the middle of this thing, I'm in deep trouble because i got to go to the king, and i got to get his help, and if he's not going to help me, I'm in deep, deep trouble. Because this is the same king that told Ezra the priest, don't even think about building that wall. Don't you even go close to it. And Nehemiah is going to go and talk to him about it. But a healthy fear of God will banish a normal fear of man. A worship infused concern brings into a fearless passion, burns into a fearless passion. Why would the king even listen to this guy? Because Nehemiah describes this, verse 11 In those days, I was the king's cupbearer. In all these years, God had been fitting him for this moment. God had put him in a place where he had been trained in court etiquette. He's a very handsome man. He's a wine connoisseur. He's a confidant and influential person and a proven, trustworthy, right-hand man. It's a great job, but it's not good enough because God says, I have something greater for you. That what you're doing right now is really nice and it's really good and you're really comfortable, but I have a mission for you that is much greater than what you have right now. But notice that Nehemiah didn't kick the door open. The scripture reveals that he prayed for four months. He said, God, show me when and prepare me for the moment. And with fearless passion, he's about to invite the king to become part of his mission because the mission is much bigger than an individual. God has this remarkable way. of. If we took this group right here and, and we said, okay, what's your, what's your mission, what's your mission, what's your mission, what's your mission, and if we all knew our missions... It's amazing how God takes our missions and then he puts them together for one larger mission. That in his great wisdom, he takes who we are and and the the, the themes in our lives and the cravings that we have and the the promises he has made and and he puts them all together, tightly together in a wonderful huge tapestry. All the other material he's made, all the fabric, now he puts it together for a tapestry that is a much bigger mission than we could have imagined. Ezra has already been rebuilding the temple. That's part of it. The king is now going to become part of the mission. It's never just about us. So, as the year began this year, the leadership in this church began asking God, What's our mission? We want to know fresh what we're supposed to be doing. What's our vision? Who are we and what are we supposed to do? We've been praying, we've been fasting. We've been testing our thoughts with the wisdom of a diverse group of people, followers of Jesus, and in the coming weeks, we're going to begin unfolding to you what we sense we as a community of faith tying into this larger, greater community of faith, what it is God's calling us to do. What is his calling for us? Our focus in the next years is will build upon the foundation that was built as we together had decided we're going to impact the city. And you remember that several years ago. We said, we believe that God wants us to touch the university campus. So Joel and Nicole came in and and began to work Chi Alpha. And and that was actually the forerunner of what became Erie Young Adults, which is having a a profound impact on this city. We said, we're going to build a building that's going to be a safe place for young adults and, and youth to come and gather. And the summit was created we also said that we were going to create a place that was attracted to families, a place where they could grow, and we did that. But in that lies our discontentment also. We have noticed, and, and, and I don't have to really tell you this, but marriages and families around us are straining, they're, they're broken, they're struggling, and understand that before there was a church, there was first a Family. And as the family goes, the church goes. As the family goes, the nation goes. So we believe that because God made the family the center of living, and it seems to be broken, that we believe that God is leading us, that we should provide our resources that we have here and our hope in Jesus. Offering those to this community to help build strong families. And we'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. You say, but wait, hey, Reisner, how do you know that's even a God idea? You said it's got to be tested. Well, we've been testing it. And I want to give you this morning one of the confirmations we think that God has given us that, that we are right where we need to be in this process. I appreciate the words of Andy Stanley who says, if the idea or burden you are mulling over is from God, there will be an overt connection between it and God's providential will. It will become apparent how the thing you feel compelled to do connects with what God is up to, in this generation. So do you remember those those concerned citizens I mentioned earlier that had grown unsettled with violence and with poverty and with depression? They they decided something needed to be changed, and so for several years now, Unified Erie has been working on their violence reduction initiative and how to deal with all of those issues and what are the important pieces? What, what do we need? What are we missing? What, what's important in the city that is not there right now that could change all this? What they found, one of the pieces just totally amazed me that they found it because this is a non-religious organization. It's a non-religious coalition and what they discovered will amaze you yet not surprise you In fact, they have gone now to the religious organizations in this region and said, here's what we're going to tell the city, and you need to be ready. You need to be ready because you hold a very key part of fixing this city. And so starting July 15th through the end of August, you will see billboards that look like this. One hour makes a difference. Children who go to worship once hour a week have better grades, better self-worth, better parent communication, and less violent tendencies. That's what they're going to tell the city. Got another one there? Lower the risk of suicide. One hour a week of worship equates to a better self-image and lessens suicidal thoughts. Take me to worship. Better grades. Kids who spend one hour a week at worship are more likely to get A's and less likely to get D's and F's. Take me to worship. Take me to worship. Just one hour a week can change a child's life. That's what your city is going to do. They're going to tell people, get your kids to worship. Not only will you see these billboards, you're going to see this video on television. If you'll take me. If you'll take me. If you'll take me to worship. I'll get A's and B's and not B's and F's. If you take me to worship, I'll feel better about myself and be less likely to commit suicide. If you'll take me to worship, I'll be less likely to abuse drugs and alcohol and less likely to participate in violence. If you'll take me to worship, I'm less likely to steal to be suspended to belong to a gang if you just take me take me take me take me take me to worship take me to worship take me to worship take me to worship worship. amazing is they, for the last couple years, they've been surveying kids. And and those are the actual statistics they found. Less likely for suicide, less likely for depression, much better grades, much better advancement in life. It's all there for those who go to one hour of worship a week. And as we've uncovered that and realized that's what they're going to do, and and now that as we're moving towards... really focusing a lot more of our efforts on building strong families, we feel like God's saying, here it is. That's what happens when discontentment grows into concern and burns into a passion. That's what happens when we let God's idea mature in us, and we mature into God's idea. We are God's fabric, manufactured in Jesus, to do something that will be of extreme benefit to the nation, to the world, and to the city. And that we will find within it what we were created to do and say, this is it. This is the deal. So this morning, I just simply want to say it's time to move forward. It's time for us to build strong families. It's time for us to build. And so as we walk through these next weeks, we're going to talk more about how you will notice in your own life how God is speaking to you and how you should begin to form your life so that you can hear what he's telling you to do and how you can arrive to that place. And while you're doing that, we're also working together as God is calling all of us to be a piece of something greater than ourselves, and we're going to see some wonderful, incredible things happening within this city as we build, and as we build strong families. Would you stand, please? Would you say it again with me? I'm designed by God for a mission. (laughs) So now let me pray over you. Father... I pray over my friends here this morning that this week you will give greater clarity to the picture you placed within them for what you want them to be involved in and want them to do. This week as they spend time, continue to manufacture in them the fitting that is necessary for the future you have. And may they find great joy in that. Thank you for your word that makes it very clear to us how you work within us. And in those moments of discontentment, in those moments of agitation, we ask that you give us peace, knowing that you are working something great, a metamorphosis that is beyond anything we could ever imagine. And we put our faith in you for that. We look forward to the great joy of the emerging of the vision that you've given us, and especially for how the community of faith here and around this city will now impact the city, as you've even spoken to the city fathers and said, take those kids to worship. So we give you thanks for what you're achieving because we've been asking and you're revealing yourself. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.